Hello and welcome to another episode of Political Agenda brought to you by New Narrative with me, PJ Thumb. I am wearing a blue and white batik shirt, sitting with three other people behind a black table and in front of a wall full of oil paintings. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. Today on Political Agenda, we have Liana Damira, author, uh, entrepreneur and politician, and Elijah Tay, student, and they're both members of Red Dot United, Singapore's newest political party. So, very exciting interview today. Uh, before we go on, of course, a new narrative is entirely reliant on membership subscriptions and uh, donations. And if you find the work that we do important and relevant, please do join us as a member. Please do support us. You can join at newnarrative.com join or donate at newnarrative.com donate. We really need your support. We are entirely reliant on membership revenue, so we really do need you to uh, join us as a member. And... Before we go on, here's Subash. Okay, so here we are today with Liana Damira and Elijah Tay, Red Dot United members. But before we get to them, as always, my friend, my co-host, Sean Francis Han, Editor-in-Chief of Wake Up Singapore. How are you today, Sean? Yeah, I'm doing good. Yeah, really excited to get into this one. We have one of the most interesting additions to the political scene uh, in Singapore, and that's Liana Damira, entrepreneur, politician, uh, and author as well. We've got a book that's just come out. Uh, so we're quite interested to get into that. But we also have here Elijah Tay. Right, uh, and we're going to find out more about you. But you are representing, uh, or at least going to be speaking about your experiences with the youth wing of uh, Red Dot United. But before we get into any of that, I'm wearing a white t-shirt, uh, black jeans, and my pronouns are he, him. Liana, can you tell us a little bit about what you're wearing and what your pronouns are? Thank you. All right, so I'm Liana Damira. Um, currently, I'm wearing a navy blue top. We are in our party colors at the mm -hmm. moment. Um, I'm wearing a hijab as well, navy blue, and with khaki bottom, and my pronouns are she and her. Alright, Elijah, what about you? Hey, I'm Elijah, and uh, I'm also wearing the party attire, so navy blue top, khaki pants, and I also have green hair. I dyed my hair a few weeks ago. Um, my pronouns are they, them. Alright, so Liana, let's just get right into it, right? Um, who are you and what made you decide to join politics? I mean, you've got a story that, you know, spans a book. Mm -hmm. at least many more hopefully to come but yeah just briefly tell us who are you and then what made you decide to join politics um i would say that i am an everyday person mm -hmm. so i am of any other common person on the street walking um what differentiate me is just that i have a book that came out which mm -hmm. you you know mentioned and introduced me about just now mm -hmm. Um, what made me join politics is because throughout the years of, of championing for other parties, other people, yeah. um, and, you know, especially in the social causes that mm -hmm. I have the passion in, yeah. I've seen that things are, movely, um, are moving very slowly. Mm -hmm. And because that there is a need for change in the upper level where mm. we introduce policies and, you know, um, affect in our country where we shape and mould the society, right? Yeah. So that was what compelled me to join politics. Okay. Mm -hmm. So why did you decide to join um, Red Dot United? 
and not say a larger, more established party? Why the new new kid on the block? Yeah. Yeah. So coming from someone from the established party, and we're talking about an established party here, right? Mm-hmm. And looking, doing my own research, looking at all the other parties that is around, um, that has been around for years, Mm -hmm. the changes that they have done, the policies that they have introduced or, you know, the bill that they have run in parliament, Mm -hmm. um, it it made me realise that there are still gaps there. Yeah. And... When we're talking about politics, the connotation that goes around it are usually not really that positive. Mm-hmm. Usually it's a negative um, connotations. Mm-hmm. And I find that even positive politics itself, there's a, a, a gap, a missing piece mm-hmm. there. And on that note, given that there are, year, uh, there are parties that has been established for years already, mm-hmm. given that uh, this era up to this date, uh, we are still facing a lot of issues that can be, you know, that can be looked into um, if someone were to have compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, that was what compels me to, you know, join RDU because we are new. And being new, we have the, we have the, uh, I would say the leverage on introducing fresh perspective, mm-hmm. fresh people, and as well as the things that are in the gaps right now. Okay. Yeah. So speaking of fresh ideas and fresh perspectives, let's get into the party's core values. Right? <clears throat> so what are the party's core values? Uh, and I think broadly, what is your vision for Singapore? Okay. What, do you th- what do you see Singapore as being able to become? I see Singapore as a society that is compassionate, mm-hmm. that we leave no man behind, mm-hmm. and we work together as a larger community Mm-hmm. to bring each other to a better life in green and pastures. Okay. And I suppose that's, you know, um, the core values. Oh, the core values yes, of yeah, RDU. <laughs> okay. So that will be faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, in short, we have that as an acronym, actually. Okay. I, I see you're looking at my notes. <laughs> so, yeah, I can see that. Faith and H3. So yes, faith and H3. What, what's that? So F mm-hmm. is for fairness, mm-hmm. A for accountability, I for integrity, T for transparency, and mm-hmm. H3 is for happiness, hope, and heart. Okay, that's, that's really beautiful. That's really heartwarming on a Saturday morning. But I need to ask, I mean... Aren't these things that every party is going to say they, they firmly stand behind? I kind of want to know what makes RDU special. There's no party that's like, I don't like faith. I don't like integrity. You know, none of that stuff for mm. me, please. You know, every party is going to stand behind these things. Yeah. But what makes RDU have that X factor for you? I would say is the do. So it's not just about saying, mm-hmm. not just about... Um, communicating the values but yeah. actually actualizing it and embodying it in oneself and I see that in not only the founders of the party mm-hmm. but I see that most of the members that RDU is attracting right now okay mm. so it's very based on the people who are in the party the things that they do rather yeah. than any one specific uh, manifesto or one specific uh, core value am I right to say that um it initially boils down from the people in the party, right? Okay. Uh, because at the end of the day, who draw draw out the the manifesto? Mm-hmm. Who writes it? Out? Okay. Yeah. So right. it's the people. Okay. Wait, sorry, can I press you on that? The who when you say who writes it? So um, there is an overwhelming impression of most opposition political parties being 
you know one or two man shows right or person mm. shows yeah um but are you suggesting that and or rather how does rdu come up with its manifesto is it more of an internal town hall collaborative process or do you still have a very hierarchical sort of internal structure you know how do these ideas get uh come go from um sort of values to policy and who writes the manifesto basically mm, okay it's interesting when you mentioned about um when you mentioned about um hierarch- hierarchical and you know top down kind of approach and um I say um, town hall meeting and all that. Mm-hmm. So for us in RDU, we always do um, a meeting where most of the members will come together, mm-hmm. and then we you know talk about the issues that we have seen, um, whatever that is, whatever that is, you know, appalling mm-hmm. in the parliament or whatever <laughs> mm-hmm. during the speech, um, and from there, all of us will come together to to talk about what are the, if we are talking about the manifestos, right, mm-hmm. that, we've, that we've churned out for the, for the past GE, mm-hmm. it's a work of more than 10 people, honestly. Okay. Yeah. So it's a collaborative effort from town hall meeting to the ex-co's, you know, the executive committee of the association mm-hmm. coming together. And we... We even debate on some stuff mm-hmm. internally, mm-hmm. and that's how and that's how actually mm-hmm. our manifesto is being written and put out. Nice, uh, Elijah. I want to get your perspective here. You know, you you're you're really really young. You're 19 years old. Uh, you just finished your A levels, looking for university right now. I want to figure out from your perspective what drew you to the RDU. What was the X factor that they had? I guess like. Um like last year was actually the first time that I actually paid attention to the general elections because the previous time I was like in lower sec and I didn't really care about these stuff yet. So yeah. um, RDU just happened to be contesting in my GRC. Mm-hmm. So I guess like that gave me a reason to pay more attention to the policies and values that they were trying to push out or like the principles that they stood by. Mm-hmm. And um, it was also convenient for me to just volunteer for them at that point in time, especially since I was busy with like A-level preparations as well. Okay. So I guess um, the draw factor would, uh, what contributed to the draw factor is um, how the things that they rolled out or like the things that they were putting out aligned a lot with what I personally believed in as well. Okay. So for instance, they, um, they did push for the lowering of, what's that called? Like the um, single persons like purchasing housing. Okay. Like they, they, they wanted the age to be lower and also like the green charter that they rolled out at that point in time. Mm-hmm. So I think that these are the things that really appeal to me as someone who cares about social justice and human rights. Um, yeah, these kind of things. So that was what drew me to pay more attention to the party on top of them uh, contesting in my region. Uh, which was um, like something I had to consider since although I wasn't voting, but like I had friends of voting age, I had family members and relatives of voting age living around uh, in the GRC. Mm. So paying attention to what they were doing and also um, working with them uh, as a volunteer Mm. could help me get more insights and uh, understand like what they were pushing out like um, better. So um, I guess like, the like the question here would more so be oh sorry <laughs> the question here would more so be like what kept me in the party and 
mm. uh, rather than like what drew me in the party. So I think like the um, like after volunteering for a while, I realized that like what Liana said, the people here really um, really stand for the values mm. that we push by, like the faith uh, H3. And I feel the sincerity, not just in the people who I was volunteering alongside with, mm. but also um, the political candidates like Liana and Ravi themselves also. I've interacted with them personally. They've looked out for me. And when I was doing some like research work with them, also like Michelle was looking out for me and making mm. sure that it wasn't disrupting my A-level preparations and things like that. So I really feel the sincerity in how they look out for people mm. and really stand up for um these um, like policies that are really people-focused and people-centric and really just want to make um, society a better place for everyone. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I want to I wanna kind of turn my attention now to Liana. So you ran, um, you, you ran in G2020, right? Mm. Uh, I kind of want to know, what were the main issues that you were pushing for, right? Uh, both politically and personally, right? Mm. What are the core issues that you really, really want to see changed uh, if you were to be elected? Okay. I think one of the issues that was prominent and something that I brought out during the election mm-hmm. was the HGB rental policies. Okay. So that was one. Um, apart from them is the welfare state that we have right now, the system, the mm-hmm. welfare system that we have right mm-hmm. now in Singapore, um, as well as the... Hmm, Shall we go down to the migrant issues as well? I mean, if that's something, if that's one of the core issues that you're fighting mm. for. Well, um, I think for me, mm-hmm. personally, yeah. I fight for a lot of issues. Yeah. And it usually derives around social issues, mm-hmm. um, social injustice and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm leaning towards that. Yeah. But when we are talking about politics here, we have to be um, sensitive in looking at it in a national perspective as well. Yeah. So what are the national issues, mm-hmm. right? Um, econo- economy is a factor. And yes. if you are going to go into, you know, all those progressive wages and all of that. So, yeah. yeah. So I, I just want to uh, point out here that um, I think that there's a very interesting link between you as a person and mm. your story uh, and the issues that you're championing, right? Mm. So I think for the, for the viewers out there who may not be familiar with the story, can you give us sort of a quick rundown yeah a quick uh, it's a brief summary a brief summary i mean it's everywhere you know there have been a lot of interviews done and you can read the book which has book. all of the details yes. i'm holding up the book here yeah. for those oh, of you watching oh, okay. oh, I just... <laughs> yeah. well i'll get <laughs> you to sign the book. book yeah yeah oh it's fantastic yeah. i have a lot of questions from from the book actually i'm very curious about stuff but please Mm-hmm. That so, would be another interview in itself. Yeah, I know. We don't have time. <laughs> so if we, can, if we can sort of get a short summary of the book, uh-huh. which is called Homeless, The Untold Story of a Mother's Struggle in Crazy Rich Singapore. That's mm-hmm. right. Okay, so the brief story is um, I, used to, I used to come from poverty. Mm-hmm. So um, like my introduction earlier, I'm an everyday common man, right? So mm-hmm. you can see me walking down the street. So I'm like you. I take the train. I take the bus. Um, and... In my book, uh, as a brief summary of my story, is that I used to be a teen mom. Mm-hmm. So I got pregnant with my first child at the age of 16. Mm-hmm. Um, I got homeless and kicked out of my in, then-in-law's flat at the age of 22. Mm-hmm. And by that time, I'm pregnant with my third child. 
and I had to resort to camping and sleeping in a tent by Sembawang Beach mm-hmm. for three months. And along the way, I went to various organizations, helping organizations as they used to, you know, position yeah. themselves as, tried to seek help, but I got another. So at the end of the third month of sleeping um, in a tent, I actually resort to the fact or even, you know, like told myself that there isn't hope. And um, when you're down, out of your luck, right, mm-hmm. in, in this area, uh, you will need to fend for yourself. And and there's no one to help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not even, you know, I'm not even asking the government to help me, just someone out there. Yeah. So what happened was I met back then, uh, I only knew them by their first name, mm-hmm. Andrew and Ravi. All right. And it was just a chance encounter during one night in 2009. Mm-hmm. And... They were the ones who wrote in to my, I think my my MPs. Okay. Yeah, in my in the constituency that I'm in, mm-hmm. and appeal on my behalf. Okay. And it, what in, what is interesting is that they it, it was just just it was a chance encounter, and okay. we just met for one time that night. Mm-hmm. But whatever that I've worked for the months before, just came into fruition after that one chance encounter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is interesting that why does it take um, an external third-party people yeah. to write in on my behalf to get the help that I have tried to find myself? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that's the gist of it. Okay. So long story short, after um, after I got the help that I need, mm-hmm. so I got welfare aid, I went through the system. <laughs> I Before even getting into the system, I know how hard it is. To get in, right? Um, yeah. Going through the system, getting out of it. So that's the main gist of what I've written in my book. Mm-hmm. So this is the part that I think I find most compelling about you as a politician, because a lot of politicians, you know, it's everybody knows their ivory tower, you know, military generals, they come from a lot of privilege, but you have really, really seen uh, the underbelly. You've seen the way that social services works. You've seen the way that the rental housing system works. You've seen the way welfare works in Singapore. So you've really seen it from the inside. Yes. And from that perspective, can you tell us what are the major issues wrong with the rental housing system uh, as well as with the welfare system in Singapore? Okay. So since we are touching on the rental, um, the HDB rental policies, right? Yeah. Um, right now, they have like an uh, uh, income cap. Okay. Where they will draw a line, who deserve to get the to get into the rental housing. Where's system. the cap at roughly? Currently, right now, it's set at a thousand five hundred dollars a month. Okay. Okay. So, um, on that note in itself, right, mm-hmm. it is already perplexing for most of the people mm-hmm. in the situation. So we are mm-hmm. talking about the families who are earning around that kind of uh, wages, um, and they are the ones who will need the the rental, yeah. uh, I mean the the subsidized rental from HDB, right? And not yeah. to rent in the outside market because it's exorbitant, you know, the rental fees are exorbitant. Mm-hmm. Um, and these families are usually earning around a thousand eight, two thousand around there. Okay. And we're talking about a nucleus of a mother and father with young kids okay. and they're looking for a, a, rented, a rental property because they could not buy for whatever means mm-hmm. they do not have the, the financial stability yet to own a house. Mm-hmm. And even that, um, I've met families mm-hmm. who 
would have to choose between trying to prove themselves, um, you know, um, eligible or within yeah. that 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 income spec that was capped at a thousand five, or getting a promotion from their from their company. So, mm. for example, they are earning at the moment a thousand four, and then they are being offered a position in the company, let's say, as a supervisor. And then it allows them to earn a thousand eight or two thousand dollars a month. Mm-hmm. So, because they will need a roof over their head, it made them. I mean, it drive them to a choice where they have to to make, which is to take up the offer, yeah, get two thousand dollars a month, yeah, or um, stay where they are mm-hmm. just to prove that they will need this rental house yeah. so that they can you know put a roof over their family head. Mm. Yeah. What about the welfare system? Ooh. <laughs> you want to get there? <laughs> I want to. I, I definitely. I want to get get far into that. Yes, I want to figure that out. Yes. All right. So for the welfare system, it is it it looks nice um, okay. on on data on paper uh, stating that they are um, they are helping X amount of people. You know, with mm-hmm. whatever uh, financial assistance or or or, or job. Placements and all that, yeah. but in reality of the fact is that I I met many families mm-hmm. who do not benefit from such aid. Okay. Okay. One being so that they, in order for them to get the financial assistance, mm-hmm. they will need to prove with so many documents. They will need to strip off their dignity, and and you know really tell the story of why they are there. Okay. Yeah, and that in itself is, I mean, as a human, you are degrading another human just to get help. Mm. Which for You're me, you're degrading yourself to to kind of uh, qualify for this for aid. Okay. Yeah. So to me, if that is our country's welfare system, mm-hmm. we are not we are not doing it from for the heart of yeah. helping another human mm-hmm. being. Yeah. So I I want to ask, how do you see? This changing. What kind? What kind of change would you like to see? What kind of policy would you like to advance in this area? Because I think it could be quite a tricky issue, right? I think on on one hand, you want to make sure that the rental housing is available to those who really need it, mm-hmm. um, and you know that you you don't get people abusing uh, the system, the system mm-hmm. right? Um, but at the same time, it's a really dumb problem to have if you're if you have being forced to decide between housing and a raise. Mm-hmm. So how how do you propose that we solve that? Speak to the people. Okay. Get data. Mm-hmm. Um, get the real life on the ground data. Yeah. Because you know, right now I question the data that our you know the current ruling party mm-hmm. or the government in itself is working on. Yeah. In garnering. Because um, from the data itself it speaks as to what the people really need. Yeah. But then it it kind of contradicts mm-hmm. the kind of policies that we set out mm-hmm. with the needs that the people on the ground have. Yeah. Because at the moment, yeah, there there are a lot of saying that oh we are doing this because we do not want uh, people to to either game or to abuse the system, right? Yeah. But at the same time, there are the other hands of the people who do not have access to all of this yes. um, aid that they require. Yeah. And on that note, if we were to be, you know, if the parliament are able to garner the right data from the right people yeah. where they are at, mm-hmm. then 
we will introduce sound policies yeah. and policies which is relatable to the everyday needs or the current. Needs I, I mean, I 100% right. agree with you here. You know, in Germany, I, I, it sounds, and disagree with you a bit, we do have the data, right? Mm. What's enough.sg has done extensive surveys and shown, and these are some of the best, you know, uh, sociological professors in Singapore, mm. um, and we know how much a family, say a single person or a couple of two, need to have a basic, to, to meet their basic living expenses. Mm. Uh, so the data is there, right? I just pulled it up while you were talking and, you know, they actually have very exact numbers. 2,351 per month for a coupled elderly household. So two people in an elderly household to meet basic standards of living needs 2,351 a month. Mm. For a single person, 55 to 64, 1,721 per month. Mm. So that's way higher than the threshold that is, you know, you've uh, told us for the rental flat, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, so the data is there. New yeah. Narrative recently ran an article where we estimated a family... Um, a hawker family, right? Uh, two adults, one child, to have a minimum standard of respectable living where it's not just subsistence, but you have basic dignity would be about 4,500 a month. The numbers are out there to do the research, but the government is not listening. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now the question is, we have the data, but what is the government doing with the data? Yeah. Right? And are they shoving it on side or are they taking the data really into account with all in all the policies that are they are you know introducing out there. Yeah, so I mean I I agree hundred percent that the data um, is, is there right, um, but we lack that perspective, and I think this is where yourself and the RDU bring something very interesting to the table, mm. because you know data is just numbers, mm. it's just stats, right? They're just figures, right? But if you don't have uh, that perspective, which you provide, right? Um, then it's going to be very hard to interpret that data. Mm-hmm. But I think once we move beyond just interpreting the data, I'm, I'm curious as to how exactly we're going to push and to fix this system, or how we're going to begin to uh, push for new policy ideas that are going to help us rectify this uh, problem that we have. So do you have any ideas on that? Oh, you know, uh, one of the reasons why mm-hmm. I said okay yeah. to running for the past election yeah. is the you know the possibility okay, the possibility mm-hmm. of getting a seat in parliament, yeah. right? And having that seat in parliament mm-hmm. equals to having the chance or the platform to ask and raise the right questions mm-hmm. to the current people who are in parliament right now. Okay. Yeah, and of course, uh, the people here on the ground, we do have our own, you know, even Elijah, she's, uh, they are doing the, the kind of social work that they are doing, yeah. right? And myself, I, I currently uh, are also involved in other NGOs. Mm-hmm. And the, the ground sentiments is not being pushed up to the people at the top. Yeah. And the people at the top are the ones that are in power to push up the policies. Mm-hmm. So there is a contradiction there. I, I Yeah, I, I, mean, I fully agree. But I think also that there is a little bit of a sentiment that the opposition is really just there or it exists only for the purpose of raising questions, mm-hmm. right? And then, you know, poking holes and saying, this is bad, this is not so good, right? Uh, and that, that's all that they exist for. If you're looking for policy ideas, if you're looking for uh, policy initiatives, don't look at the opposition. They're not going to give that. They're just there to raise questions. So 
Which isn't even true because uh, so we're recording this twenty seventh March. We just had a session of Parliament, and what was basically the session of Parliament uh, involved the Workers' Party giving a good suggestion, and the yeah. PAP saying, "Oh, no need, no mm. need." And then the Workers' Party gives a good suggestion, and PAP says, "Oh, you know, that, that's uh, we've already got stuff to cover that they clearly don't, yeah. you know." And another good suggestion, like, "Oh, no, no, no," you know, and it just, they just ignore it. So how do we even, even if you get into parliament, right, mm-hmm. and the workers' party is there, and they're making good, solid suggestions, mm-hmm. but they're being ignored. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. once in a while, the PAP, you know, will shamelessly co-opt. They've co-opted a lot of SDP suggestions in, mm-hmm. and, and workers' party suggestions with no acknowledgement and pretended it was their idea all along. Mm-hmm. So is that all that opposition parties can hope to change? Or do you have a different vision for what you would do if you want a seat? Mm-hmm. Oh, um, first and foremost, I think since we are talking about numbers here, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, let's let's get to the fact that in Parliament, how many seats are there being hosted by the ruling party, mm-hmm. and then how many seats are being um, won by those in the ruling party, yeah. and how many seats are being you know um, actually productively um, taken by the opposition parties. Mm-hmm. So we are, if we are talking about numbers, mm-hmm. just in parliament in itself, we got to have more people in there. Mm-hmm. And more people meaning to say that those from the opposition parties. Because mm-hmm. if, we, if we are looking at it as a numbers game, right? Yeah. Numbers, the people, the amount of people will mm-hmm. help to also decide or even be a factor in the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right now, look at the numbers. Mm-hmm. Who are, what are the numbers tilting towards to, and who is in the ruling party right now? Yeah. I want to I wanna kind of uh, come back to something that we sort of touched on a little bit just now, and that's the youth wing, right? And I want to direct this question to the both of you, and um, I want to find out what, what is the function, or what do you see as being the function or purpose of the uh, youth wing? I would say that um, as what I initially mentioned just now, uh-huh. Fresh perspective, okay, and into introducing the gaps that we see, mm-hmm. and championing for it with you know new vigor, mm-hmm. yeah. Because uh, the youth wing will be the the, I mean the youths are our next people who will be leading mm-hmm. the 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 government the the country right mm-hmm. so we will have to start somewhere okay and having a youth wing it helps to it, get to that day is the goal to sort of groom young talent to run for parliament run in the next election as a candidate well at least expose them to the whole process okay currently currently right now mm-hmm. even in the social settings or you know your everyday settings in life yeah um i'm, I'm not sure about yourself but mm. for me being a you know trooping singaporean here yeah i was told in everyday settings not to talk about politics in in public oh yeah even you know or, uh, at a kopitiam or <laughs> when i'm having my meals and just having a conversation with another friend mm-hmm. they will usually charge me and say no don't don't talk about politics mm-hmm. you know you will get into trouble <laughs> So that has been usually the thinking around it. Okay. That has been drilled down since years ago. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about uh, different age gaps here, right? So from the elderly to, to the current young ones. Yeah. And we need to change that. So if you are thinking, are you having a youth wing in, cert, um, in terms of, you know, like that kind of grooming towards that sector, yeah. then let them have that exposure. Okay. 
Um, Elijah, what about you? What do you think is the function of the youth wing? Yeah, I think like like what Liana said, like perspectives, right? I think as much as we want to give like the youth perspective on like what politics is mm-hmm. and like how to navigate the political space, especially since um we have we're gonna have elections like say every like four to five years. That yeah. means um seventeen and eighteen year olds today, they should start paying attention to politics now so that they can make a more informed choice mm-hmm. when they get to vote. Um, in the next election. So I think the role that we play here would be to uh, have some sort of um, resources available so that the youth will be able to be more informed in their um, political decisions and also be able to understand um, like anything relating to politics, parliament and all that stuff so that they would understand um, the the importance of the choice they make when yeah. they eventually get to vote mm-hmm. and also the factors they should consider before deriving to their decision of what do they stand for, mm-hmm. what do I, who do I want to cast my vote for. So I guess that's the perspective that we can provide to them. Right. And it's a, it's a two-way thing, right? It's mm-hmm. a conversation. So on the other end also, we want to get perspective of the youth, what are the things that you care about, what are the things that we can look into, research on and really find solutions, think of solutions of how we can support um, you better as our people in this country mm-hmm. and how we can roll out policies and continue having like discussions of things that you care about and you find important. Mm-hmm. Because after all, um, we are going to be, like the youth are the future yeah. and the youth are going to be leaders of tomorrow and also the people who would be living in the society that we are building for them mm-hmm. right now. So it's important that we gain perspectives from them as well and um, envision the world that they hope to see when uh, that they want to grow up in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So question for you, Elijah. Um, we've had a lot of young people on our podcast. It's part of our current series to really look at how young people are trying to create change. And you're the first person who's actually trying to create change by joining a political party. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the other university students, university age people that we've had on chose to go into different kinds of activism, right? We've had SG Climate Rally, you know, we've had people who, uh, LGBTQIA plus activism, right? Uh, people who work on poverty issues, mm-hmm. uh, migrant workers, all that sort of thing. So why join politics as opposed to go into issue-based activism? Mm. I mean, on a personal note, I do also do issue-based um, okay. activism. I run pages like MicroStorySG, which brings light to um, discrimination against LGBTQ plus persons in Singapore. Mm. And I guess like through activism, advocacy, interacting with people and um, just hearing about people's experiences, I realized that a lot of discrimination that happens, a lot of suffering that people have in this society has a lot to do with um, systemic issues and how that boils down to um, these barriers that people have to go through, the administrative processes, the laws and regulations that prevent people from living as equal citizens. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's what drew me, like gave me the interest to go into politics because that's where systemic change happens. Mm. Yeah. But how do you feel like, I think, uh, how would you respond, I suppose, to, to other activists who mm. are trying very hard to be non-partisan, especially in a environment which you are pe- punished very much for not aligning yourself with the governing party. Uh, so people, the, it's almost a defensive mechanism to say, I am non-partisan uh, and I work, I work with any party to focus on the issue 
right, to kind of de-emphasize this, uh, uh, these, uh, or, or blunt these attacks, inevitable attacks from the governing party. But you have chosen to overtly join a political party, and not just that, but volunteer yourself for our podcast and be seen as being um, someone who's engaging both in activism and partisan politics. Do you see these as opposed to each other? Do you see yourself as having difficulties uh, in the future if someone says, oh, you're just doing this because you're, you know, you're trying to promote your political party or win power or, you know, do you, how, how would you, how do you think, um, yeah, how would you respond to this question to to this, to this situation that we have in Singapore? Yeah, I think like when it comes to advocacy, it's very diverse and there's no one way that advocacy looks like. So I think it's okay that like there are, and I think it's great, not just okay, that like there are people who are not party affiliated and just approaching various parties just to push their cause, right? And I guess like for me, cause I see how this party's values and principles do align with what I stand for in terms of the strong push for human rights and um, equality and things like that. So I don't see a conflict in how my activism, um, like I see that like my activism and my work in politics are very closely aligned because the ultimate goal is still making sure that, um, or at least trying my best to make sure that um, we, we live up to what our pledge says, like a democracy where there's justice and equality. Yeah. Okay. I want to I kind of get your perspective on this. What is the relationship of the youth wing to the party as a whole? And I think, and I think what, I, what I mean by that is, you know, I sort of asked about, um, um, I, I sort of asked Liana just now about, you know, is it a platform to groom young candidates, right? But I, I kind of want to get to know, do you affect um, the decisions? Do you affect the writing of the manifesto? Do you, are you engaged in, uh, the selection of the topics that are pushed for or championed. I mean, what kind of impact does the youth wing have? Mm, yeah. Well, actually, so, before you answer <laughs> that, how big is the youth wing? How many people are, are in it? How big? Liana, do you want to answer that? Um, I couldn't give the exact figure right A now. Gauge, we maybe? are still growing. All right. um, at the moment, what I know is that we have about 70 members. All right. Um, yeah, part of the youth wing. Oh, you have 70 members part of the youth wing. Mm. Wow, okay. Do you have any but idea? No exact numbers, okay? I mean, that's 70. Is, <laughs> well, I mean, even if we drop that uh, by, by 10 or whatever, I mean, that's a really good number, right? So, okay. But do you have an idea of demographics? Like, just, you know, aga, aga, like how oh. many men, how many women? Okay, never mind. Genders, we don't want to go into binary <laughs> thing. Um, like, but um, in terms of the political issue of, of, of you know, of Singapore, right? Um, there are certain um, ethnic and gender issues which are which actually are there's a lot of discrimination mm-hmm. and it's important to have representation mm-hmm. do you feel that you have representation of a broad swath of Singapore in the youth wing and yes. in the party as a whole yes so in terms of representation um, on a broad spectrum across mm-hmm. yes we do and um, if we are talking about the demographics of um I don't know. Shall we? Shall we get into race here? Uh, it, it is relevant to the Singapore relevant, context because yeah. there's a lot of racial discrimination in Singapore. Yeah. So if we are talking about race here, uh, I would say across the board, mm-hmm. across all races, uh, the representation is equal. Okay. Mm. Equal as in um, equal to the overall national percentage, or equal as in you have actually equal numbers of CMIO 
What do you mean by equal? <laughs> okay. All right. So if we go to CMIO, it'll be, all right, equal numbers of CMIO. CMINO. So, mm. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. That's very interesting. All right. Oh, that's uh, that's very diverse. Well, and, and sort of um, within the the youth wing, is it uh, the, is there a sort of um, you know when 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 I spoke to PSP, they they said their youth wing is actually in their late twenties and very male, mm-hmm. right? And then SDP, uh, we haven't had that podcast yet, um, but they said their youth wing is actually very young, right? Late teens, early twenties. Do you yeah. have an idea of the age range of your youth wing? Oh, okay. So Elijah is, what what age range are you, Elijah? I'm I'm 19 this year. <laughs> yeah. So you are in the late teens range, right? Yep. So we have late teens, mm-hmm. early twenties, um, and late twenties too. Yeah. Okay. And youth, uh, if you are going in the national sector, the youth will be up to 35, right? I mean, it's it's, it's, very, it's arbitrary. It's <laughs> different yeah, so we have the late teens, mm-hmm. early twenties, late twenties, and uh, early thirties. Okay, mm. so more or less even distribution. You, th- you think between those? Mm, yeah, more or less even mm-hmm. distribution. Yes. Oh, so I say it's cool. equal in terms of CMIO. Mm-hmm. It's equal. Up. It's diverse in terms of the dem- demographics of the age range as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if cool. that helps to okay. understand, yeah. Yeah. and there's power in diversity, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So, what what is the role of the of the, the the youth wing? Like, what is your relation to the party? Do you do you affect the discussions? Do you affect the manifesto? What goes out? The issues that are pushed. What effect does the youth wing actually have on the party as a whole? I mean, like what we discussed earlier, like like what we discussed earlier. Um, I think that the youth wing has. Uh, has a strong potential of providing perspectives as in uh, like giving us a perspective of what would be important for the party to focus on in terms of the issues that youth care about and the ideas that they may have in terms of um, responding to these issues. Mm -hmm. So I think that might be the um, one of the key roles that the youth wing might play. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I guess like also just um, having a like safe space for discussion and discourse as well mm-hmm. in terms of discussing um, our national politics or just like social issues mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and not having the no we cannot talk about politics <laughs> yeah I, I also found it very interesting that you mm-hmm. run um, an LGBTQIA uh, Facebook uh, Instagram page mm-hmm. am yeah. I right um, so I think that's really uh, fascinating and you're in the youth wing of this party right and I think most most people I th- would associate maybe a party like the SDP with being LGBTQIA friendly, right? So I kind of want to know, you know, how, how does RDU relate to these issues of uh, gender and sexuality, diversity, about LGBTQIA issues? Um, yeah, what is, the, what, what is their stance or what is their relationship with these issues? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Uh, hold on, before we get into that, mm-hmm. a question from the Discord. Uh, a member prompted me the obvious question I didn't ask is actually what is your representation across different genders and a bit harder to say but different sexualities do you feel that you have diversity in that area as well Mm -hmm. yeah so in terms of diversity across gender yes we do have but in terms of the numbers Mm -hmm. we can still improve okay yeah and we're still growing so Mm -hmm. So I mean, uh, uh, so coming back to to Elijah, yeah. Yep. How does the party kind of relate with uh, LGBTQIA issues? Mm-hmm. Is it something that can be discussed? Is it something that you want to push for? How 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 does the party kind of navigate that? 
Mm, I guess this is definitely something that we can discuss because these are things that are pertinent to what the youth care about today, like LGBTQ+, mm. um, climate change, racism, things like that. Yeah. So it's, there's definitely room for discourse and room for discussion as well in terms of like what are the areas that we care about and want to see change in mm-hmm. and what are the policies that we want to push for, what are the ideas we have right now, what, 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 what are we thinking about these issues, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, like for RDU, cause we stand for like um, equality, we stand for justice, we stand for human rights. Yeah. So it's very, I guess it's natural for us to also be inclusive of LGBTQ plus persons as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think we have a hard stance at this point in time, mm-hmm. but we will definitely bring these things up in discussion whenever we have it. Okay, yeah. all right. Um, so I guess on that note, is there a kind of disconnect between the youth wing and the party as a whole, right? And I'm asking that because I think the youth generally um, have a politics that is about inclusivity, that's about structural issues, that's about social justice, right? Um, And I think the old guard, or at least the the traditional way of doing politics in Singapore is pragmatics, bread and butter issues, right? Let's get the GRC, let's find out a way to connect to the working class Singaporean. so is there, a, is there a kind of disconnect in the RDU between maybe the more idealistic, more social justice-oriented youth wing on one hand and the more bread and butter, more pragmatic um, party as a whole? Mm, I don't think there's a disconnect. It's more of like how we find middle ground. Because like when we talk about social issues like LGBTQ+, or racism, mm-hmm. these are bread and butter issues because they affect people on the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. So even if you want to talk about it in a pragmatic sense, yes, we need to care about these issues because people are suffering, people are having like issues that seriously affect mental health because of the policies that are still in place that continue to discriminate these people. Yeah. All right. That's a, yeah, you should. You should <laughs> I mean, that's a really good answer. I think, yeah, you know, I think that the framing of that, of that question is often very problematic as if LGBTQ people weren't like bread and butter, mm-hmm. as if they weren't themselves working class. But so, um, yes, great answer there. But OK, now I want to turn my attention now to you, Liana. Why don't you run for, for, for leader of the youth wing? I mean, what, what did you hope to uh, achieve by taking up this role? Honestly, at that point of time, mm-hmm. um, being new, RDU is still very small Mm -hmm. and we are at a stage where we are still growing Mm -hmm. and (laughs) the other the other members in the in RDU Mm -hmm. uh, does not fall in the youth sector yeah Um, so naturally me being still classified as a youth Mm -hmm. (laughs) and given someone who who have had a, a an experience in you know going through the whole process of the whole election. Yeah. Um, I would say that uh, I just step up to it okay. and volunteer. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that I run for it. Yeah. Right. I volunteer for it, mm-hmm. and more so now that because we have we are still growing mm-hmm. and we have seen potentials in the current members that we have. Okay. So we would love it if there are others mm-hmm. would step up. Okay. So how do you? build support for the party via, I mean, how do you build support for the youth wing? How do you get people interested, young people interested in joining the youth wing? Uh, how do you rally them? Um, how, how do you sort of speak to their interests? Continuing the political discourse online, okay. as well as um, organizing town hall meetings often. Okay. Yeah. And we still do our door to door, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we meet all the other youths in the 
constituency that we are currently in. Okay. Mm. Um, Elijah, I mean, when you joined uh, the youth wing, right, what, what did your friends and family think? I'm just quite curious about this bit. And then how do you sort of get reach out to people and say, hey, you know, this is, this is something interesting that's happening. Uh, we want to engage you. We want to engage your ideas and perspectives. I mean, just what, what's your experience been like in, in the youth wing? Mm. I guess like when it comes to my parents, they know that I've always been interested in doing like advocacy work. They force, they had foreseen that like I would possibly get into involved in politics in some way. Yeah. So they didn't really, they weren't really shocked by it or anything. Mm. But um, when I talk to my mom about these things, she does reflect that she's um, proud of me for like stepping up and doing these things for the people, yes. which is something that I guess like keeps me going and motivates me as well, knowing that um, my parent is supportive of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, although they might still have uh, differing views, I guess, on certain issues, on inclusivity and mm-hmm. things like that. What about your, your friends in your immediate social circle? How did they react? Oh, I, I guess they also just saw it coming. They're like, ah, yeah, that's Elijah. That's what they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's, <laughs> there wasn't much of a shock factor, I guess. It's just something that they, like people would see me like naturally falling into, I guess. Okay. And um, it's been largely supportive because mm-hmm. uh, they think that it's great that I'm getting more involved in like politics and like, helping on to like interviews like this to really share my perspective and get more I guess like more youth interested in politics as well through me because mm-hmm. um, there is like in terms of like social media a large part of my audience are people who are youth mm-hmm. so when they see me getting involved in like politics they like quite a number of them get interested in like reading up about these stuff as well. Mm-hmm. I've received like direct messages where people say like, hey, I really admire the work you do. Mm-hmm. And like, because you were posting this stuff, because you were like speak about this stuff, I got more interested in reading up as well. Mm-hmm. And like, thank you for that and things like that. So like, I guess that also like plays a huge part in like keeping me going in um, speaking up like for what I believe in and putting it through action mm-hmm. uh, in terms of my advocacy work, in terms of being involved in politics. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's like, um, the receptivity has been largely positive. Yeah. All right. So I want to sort of get into the last section of the interview here, right? Uh, and Liana, I want to find. I want to kind of figure out from you, how do you think we should or could create change? Basically, I want to figure out what's your theory of change. How do you see yourself as an agent of change in Singapore and in the world? I think for me. Mm-hmm. In my own theory of change, yeah. is to be the example. Okay. And being by, um, being the example means to do the mm-hmm. actions, mm-hmm. not only preaching yeah. what you think I know is morally right also, mm-hmm. and at the same time, doing all of it mm-hmm. with others in mind. All right. Mm. So I love that broad. Um, overarching theory of change, right? I want to kind of zero in on the Singapore situation. What do you think is the change that opposition politicians can and need to bring to the table in a one-party state? I think a lot of people have the idea, you know, opposition is just there to criticize the government. It's just there for like parliamentary representation. Or some, some would even say, oh, it doesn't need to be there at all, right? Or it's a PAP light, whatever, you know? There are a lot of, a lot of weird uh, perspectives on the opposition. But what do you think is the role of the opposition in creating change for Singapore? 
that will be not only to question, mm-hmm. but to push for the ideas yeah. that uh, we have already bre- um, brought up to into Parliament. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm talking as if I'm already in Parliament like that. Dress huh? <laughs> <laughs> for the job you want, but yeah. <laughs> but um, I think in terms of the change that we are still working on right now mm-hmm. would be to just, you know, keep on with the hard work in pushing it according to the whatever the current national state ideals that they have mm-hmm. challenging it yeah and also to int- not only introduce the solutions but acting on the solution yeah and providing the data that hey this can be done okay yeah if it is happening why do we still face the no disapproval of it mm-hmm. so I, I want to kind of you know, hone in on that one word that you used just now, which is push for change, right? I mean, apart from critique and collecting data, what goes into this push? What goes into championing issues, right? You know, I think some people would would criticize the opposition and say, oh, you know, they're only around when it's time to run for election, but what are they doing from year zero to year four, right? So yeah, what what, what goes on in, in those four years? In the push, you mean? Yeah, in that push, yeah, in that four-year push before the elections come. That is um, more grassroots, okay. more meeting people, mm-hmm. uh, more continuing uh, to communicate what we are fighting hard for mm-hmm. in person mm-hmm. and doing the legwork. So we can't be lazy. Okay. We were not lazy. And yeah. it's not fair that right now to still uphold to the thinking that uh, political part, uh, opposition political parties are just here during the election. Okay. Yeah. So can you give me, you know, just a, the most meaningful or the most impactful example of an example of legwork that you've done since the election that, that you think has really created a difference, made an impact in the community that you're serving? I think one of it is having people like Elijah join us. Okay. <laughs> that will be one of the impact that mm-hmm. uh, that sort of validates the work that we do, the legwork, the groundwork. Mm-hmm. Um, and also having this interview with yeah. new narrative. Yeah. Right? You we, we got your we got your attention on us too, right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> so that should so uh, that should come across as an impact somehow. Yeah. Um as well as uh, we're just not here for the one-off. Okay. Uh, we do go to show that we are here for the long haul. All right. That's very nice to hear. Elijah, um, I think a lot of youth feel a little bit disenchanted with politics in general and opposition politics. And I, you know, I, I, I myself am not really sure if I want to, if I'm all that interested in joining our opposition party, right? Um, I think that there's a little bit of a disconnect between um, the youth of Singapore, the youth of the world, and then the way that the government does politics, the way that Singapore culture presents politics, right? So, um, yeah, how do you think the youth are going to relate to a political future, right, in a one-party state, uh, in a state where politics has just never really been discussed, where it's not encouraged, right, where you could face the threat of a diminished career by getting into it? How do you think the youth are going to inherit this political landscape, how do you think they're going to react to it? Mm. 
I think a lot of it is um, like increasing the space for conversations. Because yeah. I think right now, especially with the internet age, people have a lot more access to resources, mm-hmm. to reading up about politics, not just in our homeland, but also in other countries as well. Mm-hmm. I think like, uh, especially with more discourse, um, like last year with the whole US elections and everything, I think people are more interested in learning more about politics as well mm-hmm. and reading up about how it might relate to them as a person in Singapore who is affected by these politics. So I think that honestly, largely I think people are still going to be silent on it or like stay pretty like apolitical Mm -hmm. about these things. But um, I think underneath the surface, like on a personal level, people still do engage in these conversations. Like Mm -hmm. for me, I was in a school that was rather conservative. But uh, even then, maybe I'm just lucky that I have a good like a so, a social group but like even then like when I was interacting with people in my school in my batch uh, people who weren't friends but like people who I just casually met through events and things like that yeah. um, politics uh, wasn't something that was very shunned mm-hmm. like we could still talk about it we could still talk about what our views are but perhaps they, they, um, people like they won't like post like infographics onto their Instagram stories and that kind of things. But on a personal level, I think there is still um, discussions about this mm-hmm. and there is more space to think about what we want to see in the future of our politics mm-hmm. and um, where the education system is lacking in informing our young citizens on these things. Mm-hmm. I think the internet has been very helpful mm-hmm. in providing these resources. Yeah. From your vantage point, right, and you've got a very unique vantage point here, right, at being so young, right, are you hopeful for the future of uh, this this country, right? Are you are you optimistic about the way that the youth are going to come out and create change in the years to come? Hmm. I wouldn't say I'm optimistic, but I am hopeful. And I think like being hopeful is not just about like, oh, hoping that people will pay more attention, but actually putting the action and the work into it, mm-hmm. engaging with people on the ground um, and uh, talking to youth across different backgrounds and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I am hopeful. And I guess the results of this hopefulness, hopefulness would reflect through the work that I do alongside other people involved in politics as well, mm-hmm. in engaging the youth, in engaging the general like population, in getting interested in what are the policies affecting their day-to-day, what are the policies affecting the people around them who, um, of whom like, they might not relate uh, their experiences to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So... If I can ask both of you about education policy, which I think both of you would have very interesting perspectives on, because, Liana, in your book, you actually made a very significant comment early on about how you deliberately picked uh, a a worse school, right? You had your your audit choice after the PSLE, if I remember correctly, and you picked the, the worst one as your top choice. And then you very, uh, you know, um, ominously said, oh, and, and this would have a, a, a ripple effect on the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. But you don't then go into great detail about what that is. Um, so between the two of you, I'm very curious about, um, you know, whether first you could elaborate on that, but also as someone who's just gone through the basic education system is looking for universities, right? What kind of ed- reforms you'd like to see uh, to our education system. Mm. So maybe you first, Liliana? Okay. Um, okay, addressing the, the, the liner that I've made yeah. in my book, right? Mm-hmm. 
I would say that at a point where I made that decision um, to to forward with that choice that I've made before, uh, it's more so on my rebellious state because being young and you know, um, and looking that uh, it doesn't change what uh, what I hope for it to be. Uh, that is where I put it across um, to me having. Um, going through what I need to according to my own terms <laughs> and according to my own terms meaning that I would want to really experience it uh, in this education system from where I am at and if they are saying that this school is worse okay so what do I need to what do I need to experience in this worse school right <laughs> and then live through it and see what are the changes that can um, that can be done out of that <laughs> Um and I think uh, it also boils down to when I say that we will need to um, be the example in yeah. a way, not example as in it, it, it come across as an ideal throughout to everyone, but mm-hmm. at least one example where, you know, not everything is one way yeah. and there are multiple, you know, life in itself, life in itself is intersectional yeah. and we got to embrace that. And because of that, uh, we don't see things just as, you know, when we are looking at education, we don't see that, oh, these are good schools, these are bad schools. But go through it. Um, go, um, I mean, study in that, that, that education system that we are in, that I was in before, and um, see where are the, the changes that, that needs to be done. And that's where I am now today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, what, what's, what's, a, what's, a, what's something that you would change about the education system? Because you have again, a unique perspective, right? You come from a, a part of the education system that I can, I think I can safely say none of our ministers are even close, remotely familiar with, right? What's something that you would change, you know, structurally about the education system? One thing yeah. is not to determine from the get-go mm-hmm. of a young person's, you know, option at a point of time mm-hmm. that once you choose that, you are doomed. Okay. So there's no damnation right. at the point of time. And because we because I myself have gone through the education system that none other ministers have went in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are still a lot of changes to be done. Mm-hmm. One of that is just no damnation. Okay. Um, and secondly, to see success mm-hmm. apart from just paper yeah. and qualification. Mm-hmm. Do you, would you say that you experienced discrimination uh, while you were in um, secondary school? Oh. What sort it, of discrimination? I, I mean, um, choosing you know, to go to the worst school, quote-unquote, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, how did that affect the way that people saw you? How did that affect the way that your family or your relatives uh, related to you? How did that affect the way that your neighbours or your friends uh, engaged with you? Oh, oh, yes. Okay, mm-hmm. so with that, um, with that choice that I've made, right? Mm-hmm. So I usually get um, discrimination is just something that is like a part of day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. And society or people that I met will usually um, undermine my abilities. Okay. And even say that we are just, uh, you know, like akin to society's garbage in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if that amounts to 
part of the discrimination that I face every day mm-hmm. as I was going through the system. Um, I'm almost desensitized to it actually. Okay. Well, that's not something you should be desensitized to, right? I mean, yeah. it's like you you've undergone so much pain that you don't feel the pain anymore. But you shouldn't mm-hmm. have felt that pain to begin with. So that's a terrible situation to be in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you don't mind me pressing you a bit more, when you say no damnation, um, would you do you mean something structural like making it easier for students to um, say if you've had a bad year or made a bad decision to then recover and uh, move up into um, different streams or uh, different schools okay. uh, to add on extra years to be able to um, you know, redo exams with no penalty, that sort of thing? Or is it more of a societal thing you're, 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 you're suggesting where we as a society um, need to stop focusing so much on paper qualifications and recognize that people are differently abled and have different talents in different ways? Mm-hmm. I think it's many pronged approaches mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, one will be uh, if you're talking about the the education system making it easier mm-hmm. or removing the barriers of entry um, at certain points even if someone were to make a different choice right mm-hmm. um, certainly there are mm-hmm. there are ways that we can do that still and it still need a reform in that area mm-hmm. uh, secondly society oh we still have a long way to go to you know uh, get people to embark on not seeing success based on paper or qualification, but seeing the experiences or the other values or skill sets that an individual being bring mm-hmm. to the table. Um, and lastly, uh, all of this is the intersections of the policies that we made eh, from the government mm-hmm. sector, right? From top down, we are still top down approach at the moment right now. Yeah, We still need to work there. Elijah, you are just fresh out of school, so you should be very familiar with this topic. What would you change about the education system? Yeah, I just um, I just graduated from a school that is a set school for the secondary sector. So I feel like um, like having lived through these like four to six years in this school, yeah. I feel that Chinese privilege here is like very real, and there's a very strong level of ignorance towards issues of race, mm-hmm. and because like social is issues are so intersectional yeah. when there is this uh, echo chamber of like ignorance there's that general sentiment in that school already mm-hmm. then like the people kind of naturally didn't care about other social issues as well like say climate change or LGBTQ plus issues yeah. so I think like um, aside on top of like how SEP schools are inherently problematic because of how it gatekeeps um, non-Chinese uh, speakers right mm-hmm. I think there is a serious need to review like why we even still have SAP schools right now is there like what's the relevance um, and how like what roles do SAP schools play and what is the necessity in still like mm-hmm. having um, a school especially for Chinese speaking people right yeah. yeah so I think that was the first thing that came to mind when mm-hmm. I thought about like school reforms another big thing definitely with like um, the the whole thing about the transgender discrimination in schools right mm-hmm. I think broadly speaking there's a need for um, greater like inclusivity as a whole yeah. in terms of 
um, making sure that teachers or school staff are equipped with sensitivity training and knowing how to deal with sensitive topics like race, LGBTQ+, and what are the policies that are protecting these students. Like, for instance, for LGBTQ+, students, what are the policies in place that um, ensure that teachers do not out the student to the parents when they are not ready mm-hmm. and things like that. And also, um, I had it, but I lost it for a second. Um, oh, sexuality education. Oh, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> I think like there's a serious need to like review like the curriculum that uh, students are being taught. Mm-hmm. So like for sexuality education, for instance, it needs to go beyond like the very strong enforcement of abstinence and um, what, what else is there? Like, like the message that like um, in terms of sexuality, the only route is forming a nuclear heterosexual family sometime in the future, have kids, and that's like your, that, that's your life, you know? Yeah. Like it, the curriculum has to go beyond that. And um, I think we also have to bring into the sexuality education discussions on like what LGBTQ plus is and what gender is, like everything that has to do with sexuality education, right? Like yeah. create a platform whereby people, even if they disagree, have the space to like discuss these issues mm-hmm. and be properly informed about these stuff rather than like having kids who are confused for right, for the bulk of their life and only realizing that, oh, maybe I'm bi when they see some YouTuber <laughs> like that years later so there's a need to have these more inclusive representation especially in schools when uh, these are the formative years of children and like just from a young age incorporating the sense of um, okay this is the the diverse world we live in Mm -hmm. and there are people who do not look like me and that's okay Mm -hmm. because um, yeah just as to create that open-mindedness and um, sense of inclusivity in every student. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess that's, yeah, yeah. mainly I like... I mean, I love that there's yeah. three very cutting yeah. points there, mm-hmm. right? Can I... Um, uh, so I've been loud in my condemnation of SAP schools, mm-hmm. and I think in my podcast with Subash, we um, both expressed great unhappiness because, mm-hmm. uh, of course, he went to Chinese high and uh, my son goes to Catholic high, and we were very unhappy about... Uh, the conservativeness of, of, of those schools mm-hmm. in many ways. But let me try and, and uh, take their point of view and let's have a discussion about that because I think that's something worth unpacking, especially since you've just gone through that, uh, which is I think the Chinese schools, right, let's call them what they are, the SEP schools mm-hmm. are the traditional Chinese schools, um, would argue that they have been systematically discriminated against for 150 years mm-hmm. under the British colonial government, which never gave a damn about them until independence approached and suddenly they were like, oh, these these schools are subversive because they encouraged loyalty to China and then tried to crush them and destroy them. And then they finally are able to win independence. Uh, you know, Singapore wins independence and um, also managed to set up uh, Nanyang University, Nanta, right, to defend uh, and and give, give a venue with, where uh, the Chinese speakers can have their own educational stream and protect their education, uh, their culture, their way of life. Uh, only to find less than two decades later, the PAP government shutting down Nanta and then um, trading off the ending of Chinese language education by creating SAP schools and so giving greater resources to the traditional Chinese schools. So a uh, Chinese-speaking person might say, hey, this is the only avenue for us to 
protect our traditional Chinese language and culture that has evolved in Singapore over the decades, even century over. And we have been so discriminated against by an English-speaking elite, the colonial elite, the PAP elite. We've had our schools shut down. We've had uh, you know, our media forcibly bought over by Singapore press holdings. We can't teach in our own language. And now you want to shut down the, the one thing we have left, which is just some, a bit more resources for our traditional Chinese schools. You know, why are you discriminating against us? Why do you want to destroy us? Right. So how would you respond to that kind of argument for um, sort of the right of a minor, you know, a minority community, the Chinese speaking Chinese for uh, especially in the context, not just of Singapore, but broadly speaking in Southeast Asia, the right of a, a minority community to have its own language and culture? I mean, like, I do know that there are quite a few clan associations around in Singapore. So I think that they are doing a pretty good job trying to, like, preserve uh, some sort of, like, Chinese culture and things like that. So if that's something you really want to cultivate, you can go to these clan associations. There are avenues outside um, the education system that you can turn to. (laughs) I think, like, when we think about, like, discrimination and, like, who are you protecting, right? Like, in the context of Singapore... It's, it's fact that like Chinese th- the Chinese population is like more than 70 percent and we are the privileged like racial group in Singapore so when you talk about like protecting the Chinese heritage and like the Chinese culture mm-hmm. what you are doing is it's more so gatekeeping like other people of other races from tapping into the resources that these uh, MOE schools could provide mm-hmm. so I'm not saying that like for SEP schools we um, if we do like I don't know I mean that's that's a whole other discussion like the whole review of SEP schools right mm-hmm. but what I imagine it to be like if we reform SEP schools is that like these schools sure they can preserve like the, the physical campuses the history of the schools these kind of things these are pretty normal things that like every secondary school have anyway like all oh, the school history and maybe like um, if the school has the facilities a heritage centre which like describes the school history and things like that mm-hmm. these things can be uh, preserved. No one's going to erase the history of these schools. But I think the question here is how do we open up these um, like these slots of like being a student of this school? How do we welcome um, people of diverse races into SAP schools so that they also benefit from the education and resources that these schools can provide? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so... What if, uh, you know, again, just trying mm-hmm. to play that with them, they say, we, we, we are not privileged. English-speaking mm-hmm. Chinese are privileged. Mm-hmm. We're Chinese-speaking Chinese, and we are not privileged in English-speaking Singapore. Mm-hmm. You know, in some ways, we are um, discriminated against because everything's in English. And, um, you know, I have to go abroad in order to, or, or turn to sources from abroad in order to read and speak my own language, right? But here, everyone wants to speak English and we're forced to speak English. And, you know, um, it's, it's my culture that, is, um, that needs protecting, mm-hmm. right? How, how would you respond to that kind of argument? I mean, it's sort of denial mm, of yeah. privilege, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you really want to be in an environment where everyone is speaking Chinese, SEP schools aren't the place to go either. Because, like, mm-hmm. honestly, um, like from my own experience at least barely anyone speaks Chinese to each other in the school everyone speaks in English and Mm. um, 
Chinese standards in SEP schools aren't fantastic either, pretty ironically, because I remember in SEC 4, before our Chinese, like higher Chinese O-levels, like three quarter of the cohort was in remedial. So like, um, if you want an, a learning environment where with a high standard of, um, I guess like a command of Chinese, it's like SEP schools aren't really the place to go either. Pretty much like from my experience, SEP schools, like um, what they do for to retain like Chinese heritage or privilege is like for my school, we have like one week of like playing what Chinese chess, like way tea <laughs> and like drinking tea. And like, that's, that's it. That's our Chinese culture. <laughs> so like, it doesn't make sense either. Like why we have um, SEP schools to um, preserve this sense of like what, whatever they think Chinese culture may look like. Cause like in their heads, okay, maybe it sounds good that we have a space for Chinese speaking Chinese, mm-hmm. but it doesn't even like substantiate in SEP schools. And that's not really, I guess like the focus that SEP schools are trying to have either. And I think the current function of SEP schools um, from what it seems is just, okay, we're going to have a population of mostly Chinese people who are all Chinese speaking. And we like, and it's an elite school. So it's, it, I think like for the most part, SEP schools are pretty much gatekeeping non-Chinese speakers. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. Yeah. I, I, I think there's, that's a very interesting point. Like mm-hmm. your actual experience of it is kind of different from what it's become a symbol of. Mm-hmm. And what it's actually achieving is not what people read into it, mm-hmm. right? It's become a symbol for a certain protection of Chinese culture, language, whatever. But from your experience, which is you know very powerful because you've gone through four years or what, six years mm-hmm. in, in this um, secondary and JC system, mm-hmm. and it's not actually accomplishing what... Um, what it, it, it's supposed to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So what, how would you change the system? Would you just do away with SAP schools or would you want to offer a new way for these schools to, to move forward? Um, and specifically you mentioned ending gatekeeping. What would you mm-hmm. like to do with regards to our system as a whole uh, to, um, and to, to reduce or end discrimination? Mm. I guess like the main problem with like 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 what gatekeeps people from entering SEP schools in the first place is like that it necessitates um like you taking higher Chinese in primary school or something like that like to make sure that you are Chinese speaking so just do away with that like let SEP schools exist as any other like school secondary school where um people of any like according to like their qualifications of their PSLE results or whatever can apply to mm. and it shouldn't be like their ability to admit into a SEP school should not be on the basis of whether they speak Chinese or not. So mm. I guess that's the main thing that And if I, I can add, yeah. um, there were Malay kids who went to Catholic high primary with my mm. son who could speak Chinese mm. and did hire Chinese and did as well as my son in PSLE mm. and were not admitted to Catholic high. Oh. And I find that very suspicious. Mm. Uh, I'm not going to say, of course, that anything <laughs> deliberate happened, but I find it very suspicious that someone who comes from a feeder school and meets all the qualifications and did every bit as uh, well as the Chinese students somehow didn't get in and they happened to be of, the, of a different race, mm-hmm. right? So yep. gatekeeping, yes, I, yep. I, I fully agree. So please go on, yeah. Yeah, so I guess like the... The what's that? Yeah, like, like the eradication of that gatekeeping, and mm-hmm. within the schools itself, how do they 
implement more inclusive policies because for my school like our school song is in Chinese so if we admit people who are not Chinese speaking how are they gonna like mm-hmm. understand the school song and like the school values and things like that so there will be a need to like tweak like small things like this as well mm-hmm. to ensure that the school is an inclusive space for everyone regardless of their race when they enter these schools mm-hmm. yeah I mean, if we remove the gatekeeping mm-hmm. and we make the school more inclusive, is there anything left of a SEP school? I right. mean, there's still the <laughs> history which you can read up on if students are interested, but most Just of the time I don't think... the yeah. abolishment of the SEP school, right? I guess, I guess. But I mean, they still have their physical campuses. Mm. They still have whatever statues that they brought in from years ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, They can still teach certain things, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, But if a Malay or an Indian or someone is willing to... Uh, you know, and interested in learning it, then they should have the opportunity. They shouldn't mm-hmm. gatekeep and say, "Oh, you you need to be of a certain background in order to study this," mm-hmm. and you don't need to be so aggressively. Um, again, I think gatekeeping is the right word, right? To mm-hmm. to kind of limit things to a certain let let people choose their own lives and let mm-hmm. parents also you know choose what is best for their children, mm-hmm. um, rather than the schools trying to throw up barriers in pursuit of a sort of ideal that doesn't even really exist when you actually look at it on the ground, as mm-hmm. you've described, right? And, yeah. and a, a world that doesn't really exist anymore because mm-hmm. what is traditional Chinese culture anyway, given yeah. how drastically different the PRC uh, north to south is, or Hong Kong or Taiwan, you know, or Chinese in the diaspora, all very mm-hmm. different speaking, writing different languages so um yeah i mean i think that these are these are these are really the the amazing discussions that we need to be having Mm -hmm. right but i mean we're sort of out of we're sort of out of time right but before i wrap up uh liana i want to ask you uh about your fundraiser can you tell us more about that oh okay thank Mm -hmm. you um, well, the fundraiser that uh, we did not okay. Actually, Elijah is actually part of it too. Oh, nice. You can chime <laughs> in. All right. <laughs> just, just nice. Have you seen the video though? No, no. Okay. Yeah. You've got a link, right? I think so. Uh, yeah, on the... Right? Yeah. Okay. So, please do see the video. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it sent across the message on its own. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the this particular fundraiser is to benefit... Uh, four beneficiaries actually one okay. migrant mutual aid mm-hmm. and three current charities okay. one is babes mm-hmm. beyond social services and aware alright mm. so that's part of the fundraiser mm-hmm. that I had recently launched during my birthday oh very nice mm. so how can we get involved in this fundraiser oh yes please um, you can either go to give.asia mm-hmm. forward slash mgld fund mm-hmm. to donate All right. and please 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 do share the page around too. very nice and wh- why these organizations I think partially because of my own life experiences mm-hmm. and given that I wish they were they were the ones who helped me mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or come across mm-hmm. me back then mm-hmm. and I know that uh, of the wonderful works that they are doing right now because mm-hmm. I have been volunteering with them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that is why. So if we like to get our hands on a copy of your book, how can we do so? Oh, go to Kinokuniya, popular, um, especially Hulk's epigram mm-hmm. or even you can go on to Epigram website directly. All right. And finally, mm-hmm. we download talking about the RDU's youth wing. How should we uh, contact you if we're interested in joining? Oh, yes. Please visit our social media. We've got 
um, RDU on IG, Facebook, um, visit our website mm-hmm. and please write us uh, write in to us directly. All right, very nice. So thank you so much for coming. This has been an enlightening interview here with author, entrepreneur and politician Liana and our youth wing member of the RDU, Elijah. Thank you so much for joining us and speaking to us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Liana. Thanks, Elijah. I'm really, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I have to say I'm really impressed by uh, your answers and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very insightful, thoughtful, comprehensive. So I wish you all the best and I hope both of you succeed at uh, what you're trying to achieve. Yep. And of course, thanks as always to my co-host, Sean Francis Hahn. Mm-hmm. Thank you for excellent questions and moderating. Mm-hmm. Thank you to our members on our member Discord. Uh, as always, this has been live streamed to our member Discord. You've um, put up questions and made comments. It's been really, really helpful. Um, and if you'd like to join as a member, all of you listening, thank you for listening. And if you'd like to join as a member, you get access to the Discord, you get to watch these live. Um, so join at newnarrative.com slash join and donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. New Narrative is entirely dependent on membership revenue and donations, so we really do need you to support our work. So if you find this important, please do join. Uh, thank you very much, all of you, and see you next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Please stay where you are.